Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Imagine you're 45 years old, diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, and then you find your insurer refuses to pay for a new drug that your doctor deems most suitable. For your treatment, what do you do? How will you know if your insurer will pay for the treatment of your disease? Should you make it a practice to ask if a drug is being used off-label? Is an IP and a rider enough for serious illness coverage? If you truly want peace of mind, do you need critical care insurance? Those are just some of the questions that we're going to put to my guest today. What are some other lessons we can take from the recent case here in Singapore of the 45-year-old housewife who was shocked when her IP and Rider was not sufficient. Her insurer rejected thirty-three thousand dollars of her cancer bill because the drug involved in her treatment was HSA approved for a specific type of cancer, which the insurer said was not what she had. She had, by the way, a very rare form of cancer. So the reason given by the insurance provider was that the drug had not been approved by the Health Sciences Authority for the treatment of bile duct cancer. Which the patient had, the HSA had approved the drug in 2018 for HER2 plus breast cancer. A lot of fine print there. I'm going to try to, you know, rise above the fine print for lessons that we can all use to better think through the level of insurance coverage we have for real peace of mind in the event of a health crisis. Elijah Lee is financial services manager at Philips Securities. Good morning, Elijah. Good morning. Let's talk about what happened in this case and why the insurer did not pay the claim. In your opinion, okay. So as you mentioned, on in this case, this forty-five-year-old、uh, housewife, she was actually diagnosed with this very rare form of bowel duct cancer, right? So it's so rare. I think in the article they mentioned that、um, less than six percent of bowel duct cancers are actually this type of cancer. So of course, it had a very Pretty aggressive form of、um, spreading, and the oncologist, which is actually the specialist treating her, tried different things. Right? They tried、um, one type of conventional chemotherapy, and、uh, I'm citing for the article. They said that he was not able to. She didn't respond well,、mm. and then they used a second choice as well, and then it also didn't work. Rather unfortunately, and after that, apparently there are no standardized. Types of treatment beyond this, so her oncologist actually started her on, and I quote, a cocktail of immunotherapy to boost her body's immune response. So that's the first thing, and then second thing was a form of targeted therapy against that particularly aggressive protein to slow the growth. So when they started the treatment, which actually lasted between,、um, I think in the article it said between November 2021 and January this year,、mm. you know they thought that since this housewife had a shield plan that covered for private hospital care as well as the rider that is supposed to cover most part of the outpatient bills, okay, so they didn't think that the claims would be a problem. But the cost of the treatment,、uh, first thing was, is actually more than double that of chemotherapy. So that is rather expensive. So lo and behold, after that. The new drug,、uh, the insurer refused to pay for that, and actually that did come up to an excess bill on the housewife of about thirty-three thousand, as you mentioned. But I do know that, of course, the insurer did pay for the remainder of those bills, which is about fifty plus thousand. But it still leaves her on the hook for thirty-three thousand, which, as you can tell, is not a small sum of money for a lot of people. 
So that is the first thing that struck me so far, which I felt like this was actually quite a very sad case. But it is true that for a lot of insurers, okay, you do have to see whether the treatment is approved. We call these off-label drugs that may not be approved by the particular insurers to treat. So this is something that is a very fine print. I don't really think that a lot of people do know about this. But of course, the article having come out would probably have raised some awareness. There's another Straits Times article actually mm-hmm. that was issued, that was printed last month. Mm-hmm. And they said that, and I quote again, I've article in front of me, a check with the top four integrated shipment providers in Singapore found that a few of them would actually pay for off-label use of drugs. But there are some shipment providers that actually don't cover that. And that's actually in the fine print. Yeah, so unfortunately for this housewife, she had one of those insurers that did not pay for off-label drugs. Of course, the thing to note is that, I guess one thing to note is integrated shield plans themselves are also changing one more time in 2023. This was actually announced in 2021, but the change in my view is a little bit more stringent. Shield plans from 2023 may not, uh, people who claim from that may not be able to claim for certain outpatient cancer drugs. So. Basically, MOH is trying to restrict the list that cut that down to a list of clinically proven and cost-effective drugs. But we know that sometimes the best treatments can be very expensive, and I think that's the problem here: is yeah. is how much is your life worth? Yeah. You know, of course, uh, you will say a lot, right? But sometimes the number may just be too big. And you hope that the insurer will keep up with the evolution of medicine, and sometimes the best treatment can be experimental. In this yes. case, because she couldn't pay and was worried about you know future treatment with this particular drug, she and her doctor decided to skip the drug for one session. And what yeah. happened? The cancer markers shot up by about fifty percent, and yes. the tumor grew. Correct. So very so, difficult decisions to have to make. Yes, correct. So uh, I think the doctor said something like, you know, when they started her on this therapy, it was working. So is she supposed to stop it just because the patient cannot afford to pay? Yeah. Listen, I often wish there was a hotline I could just call to say, listen, I'm going. this is what I've been diagnosed. I have no idea what treatment they're going to use. Will you pay for it? And then get wow. a clear yes or no. But there is no <laughs> such thing, unfortunately. No thing. And very few people... You know, I'm going to query the doctor if it's a cocktail of drugs to ask, what are the drugs that you use in the cocktail? And then, you know, how many of these are off-labeled? These are not regular questions that ordinary people ask. So do you think this could have been avoided, this whole situation in the first place? Well, I do think that if the doctor had checked with the insurer first, maybe we could have got an answer. Uh, But then sometimes, you know, in the interest of time and saving the patient, sometimes every Every day that you delay the treatment counts. So, so when in a lot of that situation, I used to be a combat medic, actually. So uh, we used to have this motto, life over limb. So you save the patient first and figure out the rest later. Right. You know, so it's really a very threatening situation. Like if you delay treatment by even a week, the patient, the patient's chances of survival drop even further. I don't think you will want to wait for an answer. You want to go and, you know, do what you need to to save the patient first before you figure things out. Uh. Now, I'm not saying that uh, 33,000 is a small sum, but it is still manageable. But I'm not sure if you recall last year, I think it was last year, there was mm. this two-year-old child with a very rare form of disease and there was crowdfunding done for this child because the medicine cost $2 million. Wow. not sure you remember that one. No, yeah. yeah, yeah. so there was one uh, incident last year uh, where this child had a very rare spinal disease and there was some crowdfunding done. 
Fortunately, they managed to raise the money. It was actually in Singapore. The kid was a Singaporean citizen and they raised, the parents raised, I think, around $2 million for that drug that was very experimental, but apparently it worked. So I don't think any insurer will pay for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'd rather unfortunately, but that is the case. So, right. yeah. Coming back to this case, do you mm. think this clearly shows the need for insurers, those behind IP programs, to review the coverage of treatments, make sure they're up to date, maybe consider off-label use of drugs? Or do you think the responsibility here lies with the side of the patients, the team of people taking care of the patients to have been able to anticipate this? Uh, okay, so one thing to note is that for shield plans, actually, terms and conditions change pretty much every year. Uh, insurers are always adding new features, new scope of coverage over time, and sometimes taking away scope of coverage as well. For example, there is something called proton beam therapy, which I think if you were to look at shield plans five years ago, no insurer covered proton beam therapy. But moving forward, yes, they have tried to get out with the times. Uh, I know quite a number of shield plan insurers that cover proton beam therapy right now. So that's a good thing. But ultimately, we aren't in control of what the insurer wants to cover. Although for most part, if it's a standardized treatment, I would think that it should be covered. It's only when we start to go off-label that you might want to do your checks to see whether the insurer does cover these kind of things. So, yeah, most importantly is to check with the insurer because D and C's always change every year. That's a very important point. All that fine print and the size 8 font sometimes can seem very daunting, especially when you read headlines from around the world. In Korea, for example, the Financial Services Commission slapped a fine, other restrictions on Samsung life insurance for unfairly rejecting a subset of cancer insurance claims. According to a report, number of claims for cancer hospitalization insurance were rejected. The argument was that the patient's admission to a nursing hospital didn't fall under the quote-unquote direct cancer treatment covered by its policy. So I know a lot of people are always worried about whether or not they're interpreting the terms right with their treatment, with their plans, their critical illness plans or their insurance plans, and they're wondering, what's enough, Michelle? Is a SHIELD plan enough? You know, Elijah, when people hear the word SHIELD, I think they get a sense of security. They think, okay, I'm totally covered. But sometimes a SHIELD plan alone is insufficient. Why is that? Why do you think that? Okay, so actually, most people think that, you know, I have a shoe plan and thus, if I get watered, I get covered for my bills. Mm. And to a certain extent, that is correct. When you're watered, your main hospitalization bill will be covered. Uh, of course, there are certain co-payment components, which isn't really a lot, but, you know, it's just basically large part of the bill is covered. So most people think they're fine. And it's only after they are discharged and when they come back for law treatments, then things start to get complicated. So for example, for quite a number of insurers, you actually have to pay for your follow-up treatment first and then after that, claim back from the insurer. So you're out of pocket first. Mm. And what happens if, for example, as in the case of the housewife, you pay first and then on that you realize that actually it's not claimable and then you're out of pocket by like a five-figure amount. Yeah. So that is one thing. And another thing is that, for example, supplements, for example, may not be considered claimable by the insurer. So, example, if let's say your doctor said you need a little bit of iron tablets, okay, may not be considered medically necessary by the insurer, may be still prescribed to you by a doctor because he thought it will help you, but you can't claim for that. So there are actually quite a number of things that are not claimable from an integrated shoe plan and we're not even talking about serious cases like cancer where, you know, you end up with things like off-label drugs which are totally not claimable and cause a bomb. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think are some of the very common misconceptions out there about just going with an integrated shield plan and that being 
a good, all-encompassing cover? Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard this one so often. I have people telling me that, oh, I have a shoe plan. That's enough. I know if I get hospitalized, I'll be able to claim and then my shoe plan allows me to claim after that. Mm. But another thing to consider is that if your condition is really serious, would you be out of work or would you need to take, say, a year or two off work? And if that happens, what happens to your family? Right? You could be cured medically, but you die financially. And that's not that's not something I think anyone wants to happen. Yeah. But people fail to consider that bit. So if your condition is simple, okay, let's say, okay, Actually, I have a client who had appendicitis last week. Mm. Uh, she called me like in the middle of the evening. Actually, it was the hospital called me. And then after that, you know, I told them, look, just go to the A&E. It's appendicitis. You need to get it treated fast, right, before it spreads. So that was what I call a minor case. She was operated and she discharged in, I think, four days. And after that, she could resume work within like four weeks. But if we're talking about something like cancer now, then, you know, you probably be off work for very long. And that is a real problem because, as I mentioned, you die financially in that case. So back Wait, to the question. Why, why so, did she call you again? She called you. Oh, actually, the husband called me because the husband. Okay, so again, another problem I see is that a lot of people do buy insurance, and now that you know, you they forget what they have. So basically, the husband called me saying if she can go private or not. So I, told, I was like, yeah, yeah, she's on the private hospital coverage. Just go to the private hospital. Meanwhile, an appendix could have burst. Yeah, that's okay. possible, correct. So mm. these kind of things, you know, you don't want to play around with. No. So yeah, that's why the husband called me just to confirm what she had. It's Normal. I would say a lot of people, after buying the insurance, you don't claim. It's not something at the top of your mind. You forget what you have. And what do you yeah. do? I mean, what can financial advisors do? Do you hmm? call the insurer? Do you, What do you do? Oh, okay. So basically, she was admitted. And after that, I called to follow up on the letter of guarantee, which okay. is to ensure that the uh, insurer will be paying the bill in this emergency. And we got it. Yeah. Okay. I have to say, I, I would like a financial services advisor, Elijah, who was a combat medic. All of a sudden, <laughs> that makes a very good combination. All right. Help us understand how critical illness plans work. Because I think the whole point of doing this show today is to understand whether or not, if you have an IP, do you still need anything on top of it? So what are critical illness plans? How do they work? And how could they really help with peace of mind when it comes to the pocket? Okay, so for critical illness plans, they actually pay out in the event of what we call a critical illness. So a critical illness, as you probably can guess, is something that's really very serious. You would actually be quite sick in that case. So for example, i just give an example like say stage 4 cancer. Right, so this kind of illnesses would render you unable to work for quite a while or just undergoing the treatment alone, even let's say after you operate for removing the tumour, you undergo your chemo or that, mm-hmm. if you still have lost to work, you probably take a year, two or even longer off work. So for critical illness insurance, as I mentioned, it pays out a lump sum mm-hmm. Okay, in the event of such critical illness. This money is actually meant for you to defray any expenses that you have and how that pay for any kind of treatment that may be non-standard. So in the case that we talked about earlier, the housewife, if she had a payout, which actually the article didn't mention whether she had a payout, I'm not sure, but mm. if she had a payout from the critical cleaners cover, let's say 100000 200000 whatever the amount is, mm. she could put a bit of that amount towards this kind of off-label treatment. And, you know, in my... If it were me, I would, you know, pay for the treatment first. I know I have the funds to pay for this off-label treatment. I'll continue the treatment, but at the same time, I'll appeal against the insurer's decision to not pay. So if, let's say, it doesn't work out and, you know, I couldn't get a claim of that 33000 the 33000 I spent on this treatment still wouldn't have come out of my pocket. It would have come from the critical illness payout. So that's something that is very useful. You can actually use that money for just about anything. So if she had a critical illness plan, if in this case, for example, Mm. she would have been able to continue treatment. 
they wouldn't have yeah. to stop Correct. treatment because there, there would have been a means to pay it. Yes. Let's dive deeper into critical illness plans. I mean, is there a certain age? Is it ever too early? Is it ever too late? Actually, it's never too early or too late. Not sure if a lot of people out there know this, but you can actually buy critical illness insurance for your kids once they are born, which I do see a lot of parents doing. Because this is a form of, first thing, to me, the most important thing will be ensuring insurability. Uh-huh. Your kid is born generally healthy. You might as well get what you need to, of course, within budget. Uh-huh. But this ensures that, let's say in the future, I have some clients, right, at the age of 18, there was I this client, she was at the age of 18 diagnosed with lupus, which is actually an autoimmune disease. And she is no longer eligible for any kind of critical illness cover forever. So that's actually very sad. But fortunately, her father bought her a policy that was covered about $50,000. So she had some, but it's really insufficient, but she can't get any more. So that's the thing. So that's a too late bit. You know, we're we're always worried about pre-existing conditions. So are you saying that the moment you have been diagnosed with a dread disease, even if you have a remission completely recovered, you can never get critical insurance coverage after that? Okay, I I wouldn't go as far as say you couldn't totally get a critical illness cover. You have to see what kind of critical illness you had. Right. You could attempt to apply after five years of recovery and uh, you probably get covered. You could get covered. I wouldn't ah. say probably. You could get covered, okay. but there'll be a lot of exclusions. Mm. But in the worst case, you'll just be rejected outright. So insurance is one of those funny things, right? You have to buy it when you don't need it. When you need it, you can't buy it anymore. Okay, yeah, okay. Very interesting. You know, I see a lot of plans out there and I often think, given the statistics, cancer is unfortunately so common these days. Is there a difference between buying a critical illness plan and just buying a dedicated cancer, you know, 180, 360 coverage, that sort of thing? Ah, okay. So this is also a question I get quite often for my clients. Mm. I do think that at the first layer of your critical illness cover, you should always have basic critical illness cover for all sorts of critical illnesses because ultimately, as you have said, cancer is the most common, but we don't know if what happens to you might be cancer. It could be the other two as well, heart attack and stroke. Mm. And those are also quite common. In fact, my mother had a stroke last year. So you see, it's okay, she recovered, fortunately. But the thing is, you, you just don't know what it might be. Cancer, yes, is the most common, but it could be heart attack and stroke as well. So my advice to people will actually, you know, be to cover yourself for mm. all types of critical illness. Mm-hmm. And then, example, if you're more worried about cancer or you have something in the family history that makes you more uh, likely, you know, in family history of cancer, you might want to top up with a cancer plan after that. This is so interesting. that should boost your coverage. Better. So we have the stacked approach, you know, you yes, need your correct. integrated shield plan, then your critical illness plan, and then maybe you want to think about dedicated cover. Correct. And on top of that, critical illness plans have evolved a lot over the years. If you have a plan from, say, 20 years ago, things are a lot more different now. 20 years ago, we didn't have something called early stage critical illness cover. And today, we don't only have that, we also have something called multi-pay, whereby if you fall sick again, you get to claim again. Right. So plans have really evolved. It's, I don't even think it's possible to talk about all no. the variations in, in the show today. But, but no, yeah, yeah, plans even have if really, have really evolved. Wall-to-wall 24-hour coverage is difficult to talk about the different types of illness plans out there in the market. But can you narrow down, can you highlight a couple that have caught your eye and how much coverage one can expect to get given the different types of critical illness plans in the market? Okay, so on the market, I would say that critical illness plans generally are split into about five types of plans. There are plans that pay on pure early CI or later. Then there are your usual term plans, which is could be a critical illness 
rider added on to a term plan. You also got multi-pay plans, as I mentioned. And then, of course, another example would be the whole of life critical illness plans with a term plan stack on top. I like to call that the hybrid term plan. And then for some people who may have underlying conditions, let's say you may be a diabetic, there is still hope, depending on type of diabetes, we have something called simplified underwriting critical illness plans. So that's probably confusing enough even before I go into any of the details, right? It's hopeful yeah. though. It's hopeful <laughs> that you don't have to be left out if yeah. you have diabetes, for example. Correct. And on the topic of how much coverage you need, I would say you got to set aside some money for income replacement if you are a working person. So, for example, uh, as I mentioned, if you have a critical illness, you might be out of work. And now, it's actually a little hard to say how long you recover yeah. from critical illnesses. But mm-hmm. the benchmark I like to use, okay, Life Insurance Association says about 3.9 times of your income. Uh, like 3.9 like times of a month or a year? 3.9 times of your annual income. Annual, okay, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for me, I tend to look at the expenses. You need to keep the family going when you have critical illness and can't work. Mm-hmm. So, I tend to look at something like about five years of expenses. But I also have a little bit of extra and that extra is for treatment money. Money that, you know, for treatments that you can't claim for a shoe plan, like in the case of the article, the off-label drugs, you're going to need money for that. Yeah. So the actual amount varies from individual to individual, but I would think that if you sit down and work it out with advisor, you'll probably be able to get a sense of what you need. And then after that, from there, you can look into what might suit you. Very important topic. We're glad that you're here to share. Shed some light on it. Elijah, thank you for joining me this morning. Welcome. Elijah Lee, Financial Services Manager from Philips Securities, right here on Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.